0: <laughs>
1: and one story that always kind of captures my imagination is: The streets lost culture. <laughs>
0: and you're listening
1: to Kerning Cultures. I first saw this essay when it was shared by author Zahra Hankir on Twitter. I opened the link in a new tab and I read the first line. And then I closed it. Not because it wasn't interesting, but because I just couldn't do it. I've been actively avoiding any news on Lebanon. Since the explosion on August 4th, 2020, and the financial downfall of my country, I traveled back to Beirut and moved all our stuff out of our home where we lived in for 20 years. And while it's been a few years since I've left Lebanon for Los Angeles, I had hopes of one day returning. And those hopes feel like they're gone. And I was, and I am, bitter. I'm resentful and angry, and I'm riddled with guilt around my own privilege of having the option to leave and building a life outside of the country. So when Zahra and so many others shared her essay, all I could think of was... No. No, I'm not going to read anything that risks opening the floodgates of my own emotions that I've been actively trying to suppress for so many months. And then our managing producer, Alex Aitak, who is just too well read, read the essay and suggested that we record it as an episode. We've done this once before with Zahra for her book, Our Women on the Ground. Listening to the episode, I'm grateful Alex suggested it. The thing is, some of us are bad with words. When the emotion is so visceral, words can come out as too angry or too loud or too obnoxious. Or in my case, when my emotions are visceral, they don't come out at all. And that can hinder sharing our own truths with others and the world. And so this episode today is at least for me and likely many others in the diaspora, an episode where we find our voices and others, in this case, Zahra's. This is her essay, Exodus, which was originally published by Guernica magazine, with the subtitle Loving Lebanon is one thing, living there is another. Generation after generation, surviving in the homeland, sometimes costs too much.
0: As the Lady Maria drifted along the Mediterranean Sea in the direction of Italy, and Basim watched Lebanon shrink away, he felt a combination of slighting contempt and triumph. The docked ships at the port of Tripoli were the first bits of his homeland to vanish, and the bullet holed high rise buildings were the last. If the glistening waters were able, they would have whispered to Basim that September afternoon that he should reconsider. Basim was a fisherman, but he had never embarked on such a journey. Still, he bet, as he often did, that the sea would abide by his wishes. After all, those same waters had been there for him in the past when the government hadn't. So he let a gust of cool breeze flow over him. He smiled, squinting beneath a raging sun. The boat, which once ferried tourists, was moving steadily. All was well. "'I felt pure joy,' Bassam told me later. "'I was afraid of nothing.' "'Just before the Lady Maria exited the port, "'the small ship and its 32 hidden passengers reached a security checkpoint. "'The Lebanese army raided the boat and discovered dozens of water bottles, "'tuna cans, packs of bread, boxes of pecan cheese, and life jackets. "'If you don't let us leave,' Bassam threatened, "'I'll hang myself.' He tied a length of rope into a noose as he spoke, an implicit threat. I had nothing left to lose, he remembered, only my spirit. The soldiers made some calls and then relented. Freely sailing in international waters at last, Basim took off his red t-shirt, emblazoned with the Arabic words Sovereign Lebanon, and threw it into the sea, even though he'd only brought one other substitute. He tossed another traveler's Lebanese flag overboard. Basim guffawed as he watched the items float away. This was what it felt like to rid oneself of one's baggage. This was what it meant to have nothing left tying you to Lebanon. A month earlier, Basim and 12 other middle-aged Tripolitan men met at a cafe to strategize between sips of Turkish coffee and drags of shisha about getting out. They were plumbers, builders, and bakers, none of this by choice. The latest economic crisis had ravaged them. Basim, a 48-year-old divorcee, earned at most the equivalent of $60 monthly. Barely enough to cover his rent. Deep in debt, he was broke and broken. So were his friends. The same day, 2,750 tons of improperly stored ammonium nitrate exploded at the Beirut port, ripping apart a city that was already coming undone. The blast killed roughly 200 people, maimed around 6,000, and left some 300,000 homeless. The news that evening aired footage of apocalyptic destruction and its bloodied survivors, a visual testimony to the economic and human cost of the state's malfeasance. The city seemed to Basim as broken as he felt. The eerie mirroring removed any doubt he had felt about leaving. Now Basim's gaze darted from the cast-off T-shirt to the boat deck the horizon, the skies. He watched some of the 15 children on board the boat play and he thought of his own. He had left all five of them, aged 10 to 20, behind. After spending the eve of his departure staring at the cracked ceilings of his apartment, pondering how the trip might go awry, he departed at 7 a.m. without uttering a word to them. They'll soon follow me after I settle down. He consoled himself, trying to keep the guilt at bay as he softly closed the door behind him. Lebanon is forever on the brink, barely steadying itself after any given crisis before yet another tragedy hits. Since 2005, the country has been ruptured by political assassinations, a war with Israel, sectarian violence and successive corrupt governments. In 2015, a waste management crisis poisoned the air, and in late 2019, wildfires gutted the mountains, destroying much of the tiny country's natural beauty. Lebanon became home to more than 1 million refugees from neighboring Syria, making it host to the most refugees per capita in the world. Their arrival, beginning in 2011, compounded a xenophobic political discourse, with some Lebanese accusing the refugees of further straining the already strained country. Rising unemployment and economic collapse rooted in governmental mismanagement would ultimately bring the exasperated Lebanese population to its knees once again. In October 2019, To boost dwindling revenues, the ruling elite declared taxes on gasoline, tobacco, and the use of WhatsApp, which most Lebanese used to keep in contact with each other, given exorbitant calling rates. Incense, demonstrators took to the streets, demanding the government step down. Others opted to leave. By the end of 2019, annual emigration had soared by 42%. Little wonder, then, that Bassam and the other men he met that day felt leaving was their only option. They decided to sell cars, jewellery, and anything else that still had value, and to pool their money and buy a $20,000 wooden boat. They would sail for six days and reach Italy, then cross on foot into Germany, where they would build new lives and dream new dreams. But the waters were treacherous, and the wild waves posed a risk. The men insisted Bassam steer the trip through. He was a man of the sea. He could even guide a ship without a GPS. He relied on the sun and the stars for guidance, they reasoned. He agreed. With that decision, Bassam became another footnote in Lebanon's long history of exoduses, stretching back well before the state's independence in 1943. The Christians of Mount Lebanon in the 1880s kicked off multiple waves of emigration, spurred by a conflict with Ottoman Syria. From 1899 to 1910, about 90,000 immigrants departed Mount Lebanon to find work in the US. Others fled conflicts that have plagued the country's short modern history. The Lebanese Civil War from 1975 to 1990, pushed as many as 900,000 people out of Lebanon, most resettled in sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, Europe, and the US. In the 2000s, Lebanese youths emigrated in droves to the Gulf states, attracted by the oil and real estate boom. My family, too, were footnotes in successive Lebanese exoduses. My grandfather, an orphan seeking work, emigrated to Palestine in 1918. He became a prosperous fool-seller and lived in Haifa until he was forced to return to Lebanon in 1948 during the first Palestine-Israel conflict, which prompted another Palestinian exodus known as the Nakba. My father would also leave his country. A newly graduated doctor dragged into the civil war, As were many young men at the time, he witnessed a brutality that scarred him. The Hippocratic Oath meant nothing during urban combat, and the sounds of gunfire haunted him for decades, even when he was far from Lebanon. In 1980, newly married to my mother, he sought the same economic opportunity and stability his father had and moved to the United Kingdom, where I was born. The plan was always to return. But following the 1982 Israeli invasion, my parents prolonged their stay to ensure their family's safety. And so one year became five, then ten, then fifteen. While we were growing up, my deeply depressed mother played Lebanese music, especially Feirouz, for me and my siblings. When selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors lifted her mood, we sometimes caught her belly dancing. She filled diary upon diary with thoughts of someday returning home and the difficulties of living in a foreign land. The weather and the people were often too harsh for her to bear, she wrote. Mama regularly cooked Lebanese ambrosia for us including stuffed vine leaves, shawarma and kibbeh. The kitchen often filled with the aroma of freshly baked pitta. At dinner she shared stories about our grandparents, about the sun-filled promenade and the shimmering sea in her hometown of Saida. The tales transported us to another land, to our homeland, which was far from gloomy needs in the UK and filled with warmth treasures and light we too felt homesick for a place we had never visited (laughs) following the end of the civil war many Lebanese including my family returned coming of age in Beirut made magic feel within reach I spent my days reading Mahmoud Darwish's poetry and listening to the leftist music of Marcel Khalife. My secret place was a small shisha cafe that jutted off the coast, tucked behind a five-star hotel, where I could smell the sea at sunset. I strolled along hidden streets dotted with orange blossom trees, where I had my first kiss. I became an activist and advocated for civil marriage and against sectarianism. I joined friends in public squares to demand freedom from corruption and foreign interference. I cursed politicians with taxi drivers. The political instability, power cuts, and mountains of garbage were intolerable yet somehow tolerable back then. Crumbling infrastructure interspersed with newly built high-rises illustrated the existential tension that tugs at the heart of Lebanon. The good and the bad, the past and the future, the wealthy and the destitute. I sometimes thought of that tension as a small price to pay to feel alive in ways that were inconceivable in the western countries I eventually moved back to. For my parents, the guilt of living in the diaspora had been daunting. And yet, as I would learn too, Lebanon was never without problems. In 2019, the Lebanese economy collapsed and the protests calling for a new government swelled. I was in London, but I felt an obligation to be on the ground. So I took time off work, flew back to Beirut and headed to Martyrs' Square the following evening with my mother. The determination was electric. The protesters chanted, <laughs> or everyone means everyone, and called for widespread resignations. The solidarity among demonstrators spilled into song and dance. Food, coffee and shisha flowed for all. Patriotic ballads and the clinking of coffee cups, pots and pans floated in the fall air. Despite their profound grievances, the protesters' positive energy seemed boundless. I held Mama's hand as we marched along. Teenagers clapped for her and she clapped back joyously, I'm hopeful the revolution will succeed, she posted on Facebook. I dream of a Lebanon where my children can come home and contribute to their own country. The hope that fueled the revolution for months eventually fizzled out. Although Prime Minister Saad Hariri resigned, politicians who already enjoyed impunity remained, as did the sectarian structures that buoyed them. But Hariri's replacement failed to placate demonstrators. By 2020, black market transactions were commonplace. Familiar corner shops shuttered. Bakers went on strike. Food prices soared. We don't have enough money in our hands uh, to run the day-to-day operations. The The crisis touched every community, every corner of society. You can see moms, dads, who are educated, who used to have jobs, who never begged for anything. They are begging for the pot of milk or for the bag of rice, which is honestly devastating. In the absence of a bailout, the meltdown worsened. And then COVID-19 struck. And with it, lockdowns and exponential economic devastation. The national currency's value fell by 80%. Even the wealthy and middle class could not access their cash. Withdrawals were capped and banks were boarded up. In July, a man shot himself in a busy neighbourhood, leaving behind a note suggesting he was motivated by hunger. By September, more than 50% of the population had fallen into poverty. Mental illness medication vanished from the pharmacy shelves. Anger crested into rage. My parents spoke of frequent electricity blackouts. Private generators often ran out of fuel, and warm water was no longer a guarantee. As the cost of meat rose, Mama experimented with vegetarianism. The internet connection grew worse and yet more expensive. Video calls offered pixelated faces of a weary nation. Meanwhile, Baba said that the Syrian and Palestinian refugees who visited his clinic spoke of severe hunger and hoped for financial assistance from him. I have never seen people this desperate for help, he told me. Migrant workers who hadn't been paid their wages, with no way to get to their home countries, were abandoned by their employers and ended up sleeping on the bare ground in front of their consulates. And then... blast. There is grief and a growing fury in Lebanon as the country deals with the aftermath of a huge explosion in Beirut that has left 300,000 people homeless and at least 160 people dead. In the weeks that followed the explosion, fears of a renewed exodus made the rounds on social media.
1: With the revolution and the corona and uh, the blast a month ago, we, we can't even imagine having a family
0: here anymore. For nearly all Lebanese, home had become a state that is killing them slowly. And they are not just killing them with these explosions, as Nadeem Houri, a political researcher, told NPR. I realize what we're talking about is really a fight as to who's going to stay in Lebanon. It's they or us at this stage. Distraught mothers with furrowed brows made tearful television appearances, lamenting their children's forced migration. Beirutis listed beds and couches on Facebook Marketplace, with captions declaring they were fleeing.
1: At this point, we've lost our money. I might be losing my car because I can't pay for it anymore. I've lost my family, first and foremost. Everyone left the country. The last
0: few months have been us like, you confirming that this is what needs to happen. And I hate that I'm doing this out of fear.
1: I don't see any hopes in the near term. Honestly, otherwise, I would have stayed.
0: More than a 1,000 Lebanese-Armenians, a community woven into Lebanon's social fabric for decades, fled to Armenia, whose government promised returnees an aid package. So many of Lebanon's highly skilled workforce, including nurses and engineers, left the country that the World Bank warned that Lebanon was facing a dangerous depletion of resources. In a single year, the country lost 500 registered medics. In September, hundreds like Basim took to the Mediterranean Sea to flee, in scenes reminiscent of the Syrian refugee crisis. The families boarded flimsy dinghy boats from North Lebanon to make the dangerous crossing to Cyprus. Two children died at sea. Their relatives had to push their tiny bodies overboard. Basim's story awoke within me a profound guilt. He wasn't just seeking stability, prosperity and essential services. ...such as 24-hour electricity. He was also seeking basic dignity and the right to dream. His departure was not one of convenience with a second passport to rely on... ...or financial cushion. It was one of desperation. Conversely, when I departed Lebanon in 2008... ...for a graduate school in New York City... ...although it was with a heavy heart... I always knew that I could come and go as I wished, or never return if I wanted. I would never feel stateless, because I would always have my British passport. I felt guilty then, too. The 2006 war with Israel had wrecked the nation, and sectarian divisions intensified as Hezbollah tightened its grips on the levers of the country. I felt complicit in Lebanon's disintegration and its brain drain. I had seized the power of a second passport to abandon it. As I bade farewell to my parents at the Beirut airport, I wept. On the plane, I clutched a Quran Mama gifted me, even though I was hardly religious. May Allah bless you bountifully, she would say tearfully, when I'd call home from abroad. I'd promise I would return when the situation eased, I just needed time away to establish myself, to send money back home. I knew I was fortunate to have these opportunities, but I still yearned for my motherland and my mother. I regularly read her journals, which she had gifted to me when I departed Lebanon, telling myself that she had it far worse than I ever would. But I too daydreamed about Sunday lunches at my grandparents' orchard. I longed for wafts of jasmine and honeysuckle and glimpses of the old city gates, veranda shutters and mosaic tiles. Trapped between languages, I reminded myself to think in Arabic. Just one more year, I told myself. But one year became five, then 10, then 15. My grandparents died one after the other my parents health deteriorated mama's knees gave way to osteoarthritis as if the country's burdens were on her shoulders baba once invincible started forgetting things during his night terrors he'd scream at invisible snipers and point at invisible tanks the number of friends i visited during trips back to lebanon waned as they too were leaving. By my thirties, the nostalgia evaporated and my eyes stopped welling up. As I watched the unraveling of Lebanon from abroad and with the benefit of time and distance, I could see clearly the flaws of my homeland. I began to feel lucky that I did not live there, even as my heart ached with guilt and resentment and sadness for feeling that way. I will return at some point to make a difference, to contribute, to help rebuild, I hummed under my breath. Then the explosion happened. It was 4pm London time on August 4, 2020, when a friend sent me a WhatsApp video of the warehouse fire that would set off one of the world's biggest non-nuclear blasts. I was mid-errand, standing in a socially distanced queue at Whole Foods, buying groceries and preparing for an imminent trip back to Lebanon as I stared at my phone. I rushed out of the store, not knowing what I was looking at. The plumes of smoke gave little away. Twitter was soon inundated with footage of the explosion itself, a pink-orange mushroom cloud followed by a boom and harrowing screams one after the other we called our loved ones where are you are you okay how much damage did you suffer my parents were thankfully 44 kilometers away and safe and yet felt the blasts tremors the fear that i felt in that moment was all-consuming and dizzying as i studied myself on a bench in north london's leafy camden surrounded by families enjoying the solitude of COVID-19 lockdown measures. I sat in silence for some time, my mind struggling with the severity of the news, even as my body reeled from it. I took the long route home along Regent's Canal, which usually brought me comfort. But on that day, Lebanon whirled in my mind. Fear made way for guilt, the guilt that I was not with my parents, my people, In that agonizing moment. Adrift in my thoughts, I failed to make way for a cyclist, whose shout startled me. The groceries I'd bought fell to the ground and a single green apple rolled into the canal. Seventeen hours into the Lady Maria's journey, a storm cloud began to form and the wind grew stronger. The sea had lost its charming blue tint and appeared ominous and grey. The waves rose as high as six metres, enough for Basim to taste the salt water. The boat began swinging and its passengers began praying. As the last strip of daylight faded, Basim tried to keep his calm, but he was anxious and exhausted. He hadn't slept in 48 hours. The winds were so strong that one traveller became severely dizzy, causing Basim to worry more. I turned to Allah, Basim told me. I was terrified. He gripped his UHF radio to make contact with a nearby ship, which advised him to approach Cyprus for safety. The forecast was grim and the Lady Maria was not sturdy enough to survive the fury of an impending storm. Panicking, Bessim sped toward Cyprus at 45 miles per hour. It took five hours, which felt like ten, to reach the outskirts of the island. There, the Lady Maria was intercepted by the Cypriot police, who encircled the boat for 13 hours before allowing it to dock. The passengers were told to disembark and taken to a holding area where they were tested for COVID-19. Basim curled up on the ground and drifted into a three-hour-long slumber. When he woke, he collected himself and begged the authorities to let them continue their trip. Realising they would not relent, Basim's chest tightened with bitterness... He knew what was to come. They would be returning to Lebanon the same way they had come. Basim watched with a tedious familiarity as the Cypriot shore disappeared. I felt bitter, he said. I did not regret my decision to flee Lebanon, but a profound feeling of sadness came over me. I could not believe this was happening to us after everything we had been through. Soon after their new ship departed, they were forced to leave the Lady Maria behind, a desperate couple threw themselves overboard and swam towards Larnaca, Cyprus. It took the authorities 30 minutes to rescue them. It's like they were trying to make an example of them to ensure no one else would try to do the same, Bassam told me. Enraged, he punched one of the policemen on the ship, A bigger fight involving eight men ensued, but Basim was ultimately restrained. As he fell asleep later that night, he couldn't tell whether his chest ached from the scuffle or the realisation that his great escape had failed. By Sunday morning, three and a half days after they had left Lebanon, the travellers were met by Lebanese soldiers and internal security at the destroyed Beirut port. They were reprimanded and driven to a village in the mountains where they were quarantined for 15 days. We returned to our humiliation and our poverty, Bassam said. I found myself walking Beirut streets four days after the explosion. It took me a moment to realize that the countless glittering smithereens, shining on the ground in the evening sun, were shards of glass that were once whole. They had made up the windows of homes, stores, schools, bookshops, cafes, hotels, churches, mosques, and hospitals. I made my way to Carantina, the impoverished neighborhood adjacent to the explosion site, for the first time ever. The story of Carantina is intertwined with the port itself. It is named for its job, a place where travelers quarantined to curb the spread of diseases during the 1800s. It has historically endured numerous tragedies, including a massacre during the Civil War, frequent floods, and now an explosion.
1: We're in the Beirut neighborhood of Carantina, a poor
0: neighborhood close to the port, so one that's been decimated by the explosion.
1: And here, families simply queue for food.
0: The blast decimated Carantina. Yet, there were fewer aid workers tending to the wounded there than in surrounding affluent neighborhoods, some of which had sustained less damage. Though the people I met in Carantina had little left, they welcomed me into their destroyed homes. They wanted nothing but to be heard. They spoke with tears in their eyes and fire in their throats. Ahmad Hajj Stafi, a Syrian refugee, watched his home collapse on his wife and daughters. His family fled the Syrian civil war in 2014, hoping to start anew in Lebanon, only to be met with a crushing death. In the moments after the blast, Pascal Safadi, a Lebanese woman, was trapped between protecting her injured son and reaching her injured daughter. Can we move to a country that loves children? Her traumatized four-year-old son asked her. Karantina's survivors faced the ever-present Lebanese dilemma. To leave or to stay. Despair was at the heart of that quandary. Some said they would flee if they could but for personal or logistical reasons, most resign themselves to the idea of remaining. No more intense was that discussion than with Maryam and Dazirey Daraoni. a mother and daughter who lost their home and were gravely injured in the blast. Maryam, 64, lived through multiple wars, survived breast cancer and experienced poverty. But it was the explosion that defeated her spirit, she said. She spoke of raising her daughters with regret for having brought them into this world, this country. I wish I never got married, she said. I was worried that if I had children, they'd live in misery. Look at what's happened. Mariam grabbed my arm and implored me to leave Lebanon with my mother. Listen to a woman who suffered from deep pain, she said. Leave. Meanwhile, Desiree, the family's sole breadwinner with a monthly salary of $120, was adamant about staying. I adore every street of Carantina, the 30-year-old said. I used to play tic-tac-toe outside, in front of what used to be our home. I want to settle here. The more time I spent in Carantina, the more I struggled to be away from it. My time there heightened the feeling that I belonged to this tortured, gorgeous country in a way that I would never belong elsewhere. When I discussed my reporting with Mama that evening I blamed the government for keeping us, hundreds of thousands of families, apart. I floated the idea of cancelling my plans of relocating to New York from London and instead moving home. Not in one year, or five, or ten, but now, to make a difference, to contribute, to help rebuild. Not now, Mama said. Maybe when the dust settles. But the dust never settles in Lebanon. Following his return to Tripoli, Bassam spiralled into a deep depression. He stayed up all night, retracing his failed escape. The thought that he left with nothing and returned with nothing consumed him because of his attempt to migrate the authorities had banned Basim from the port where he once spent his time fishing his only real source of joy I felt like a heavy weight was sitting on my chest he told me I kept questioning how and why I was back at square one in early October Basim spontaneously booked a one-way flight to Turkey He had been in touch with friends who suggested he steer a ship from there to Italy. After brief deliberations, he decided he would take the risk yet again, even though the details of the proposed journey were vague. If he failed, he would remain in Turkey and find a job there, he decided. Perhaps he would even remarry. When he mentioned the trip in his audio notes to me, his voice trembled. I'm not sure who I can trust, he said. I'll be traveling with strangers. I lost touch with Bassem the day after he was scheduled to set sail once again for Italy. I thought of him when a Lebanese judge charged acting prime minister Hassan Diab and three former ministers with negligence over the explosion. And again, weeks later, when anti-government protests in Tripoli turned violent, leaving one young man dead. I was curious as to what he thought of the developments, but my WhatsApp messages to him have remained unsent, a single tick suggesting an unfinished story. Before Basim fled Lebanon for the second time in a month, he attended the first commemoration of the October Revolution. When we last spoke, after he arrived in Turkey, I asked if he had any hope in Lebanon. Maybe in its people, he said, not in the country. Why did you attend the protests then, I asked. To stand in solidarity with those I am leaving behind, he said. I will never, ever forget them.
1: This essay was written and read by Zahra Hankir, and it was originally published in Guernica magazine. We'll have a link to the essay and their website in the episode description. This episode was produced by Alex Atak with support from me, Dana Balut. Sound design and mixing by Paul Alouf and Alex Atak. Bella Brahim is our marketing manager. Kerning Cultures is a production of the Kerning Cultures Network, and we have loads of other shows, both in Arabic and in English, that I think you'll love find them by searching Kerning Cultures Network in your podcast app. We'll be back with a new episode next week, one that I am super excited for everyone to hear. Thanks for listening.